You're listening to In the Arena Podcast Season 1, where we sit down to have some unscripted, off-the-cuff conversations with six leaders who at one time held the office of General Overseer of the Church of God Cleveland. I'm your producer, Brian Lindsay. Your host will be none other than my good friend, Buck Marshall. We hope you enjoy this episode where we sit down with Dr. Lamar Vest. So you began, so you're in Oklahoma, then you went from Oklahoma to where? California. California. You're continuing education along the way, is that? Is that how that worked? My education? You're yeah, just continuing I did. I, as I you continued go. and f- actually f- finished up when I came back to Cleveland back in the 70s. So yeah. it, uh, it took me a long time. And the reason for that was, of course, uh, my, when I was started preaching, Ray Hughes was the president of Lee, and he came to yeah. South Carolina for a camp meeting, and he had, he had heard me preach or had heard about me or something, and he called me over and called the overseer, and he said, we got to have this boy in, at Lee. And the overseer said, he's not going to Lee. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, I got students that have graduated that can't get a revival. And this guy's scheduled for two years already. So he's going to be preaching. So after about eight years of being state youth directors in places like California, Nevada, Delmarva, D.C., you know, um, then you become administrative assistant uh, of youth in Christian education. Right. What did the administrative assistant do? Like, what was the job? Assisted people in administration. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for clearing up that mystery, Dr. Ness. You did whatever the general director there wanted you, you so to do. It's just whatever they're giving you, right? You never were able to say that's not in the job description. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the catch-all. You're like, you're yeah. like making the wheels go. Right. Was that a general kind of training position to follow? Absolutely. Okay. Every step God has led me through yeah. was preparing me for the next one. Okay. So then after that, you go from administrative assistant to assistant director of youth and Christian education. Yes, I was elected. So uh, had that ever happened before? Never. So how did that come about? Tell me that story. So well, I mean, again, here again, right? I, I, I was, uh, as administrative assistant, was in charge of teen talent. So teen talent was in another section of the assembly in another auditorium adjoining. And so I'm out there doing teen talent, and a youth director comes to me and says, Lamar, they're about to elect a vote on assistant director. Uh, you need to be in there. And I said, no, I've got a job to do here. I've got to stay here. He said, no, they, they're probably going to be voting for you. And I said, they're not going to vote for me. I'm administrative assistant. So he said, well, let's go. And so I went in and, and walked in and found a seat. And the guy sitting beside me said, uh, what, what's that guy's name up there? And I said, well, Cecil Giles, but he's not eligible. No, 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 I mean that assistant guy. What's his name? I said, Floyd Carey. He said, uh, he's, a, he's a pretty good guy. And I said, he is a good guy. He said, I think I'll vote for him. So he voted for him. Floyd is elected, nominated. So they do now assistant director. Guy gets his ballot, he turns to me, and he said, uh, who do you think would do good for that job? I said, well, there are lots of people that would do good for that job. I can think of a lot of them. Well, just name one. That's all I need, just one name. I said, no, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. That wouldn't be fair. You can vote for whoever you want to. So he looks over to see if he can see who they're voting for, finally folds up his ballot blank, and he says, I ain't going to vote for nobody. He said, that won't hurt anybody, will it? I said, it won't hurt a person. Cecil Knight, as the general direct, general overseer, gets up and say, but he said, you've nominated Lamar Vest. I stood up 
That man scooted down. <laughs> I walked up on the platform, and Cecil Knight said, okay, Lamar, sit on the platform. And I said, Brother Knight, I need, I need to go back down. I had to go back down. I had to get the finishing story. Mm -hmm. So I walked back down, walked in, sat down beside him. He turned to me, and he said, boy, am I embarrassed. Fast forward several years, I'm elected general overseer, and I go to Florida as a representative from the executive committee, pull into the Waimama camp ground. There's this guy directing me, pulls me around. He's got a, he's got a, uh, he's got a uh, sign out there, welcome General Overseer Lamar Vest. I get out of the car. He shakes my hand. I said, well, this is really great. Thank you so much for this. You don't know me, do you? I said, well, I've seen you, but I, I don't, I can't, I really can't recall where. He said, you remember when you were elected assistant? Yeah, now I know who you are. <laughs> he said, I just want you to know, I never forgot your name, and I have voted for you every time I've been to the General Assembly. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's great. So it's always, you know, it's always like if you start feeling like you are about to take pride in what you've done or what you've accomplished, God always seems to have a way to kind of pull you back down. In that first church I pastored, Brother Busby, the superintendent, six foot four, five, met me at the end of the platform one Sunday morning and he said, Preacher, that's the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my life. And I, and I actually started to feel the big head. I, start, I actually prayed, God, don't let me get exalted. I walked a few feet, and one of my members caught me, and she said, you little squirt. <laughs> 20 years ago, she said, that's the poorest excuse for preaching I ever heard. You didn't have anything, you didn't do anything but meddle in things you shouldn't be meddling in. Found out I'd said something she had done I didn't know about. So that's how you get to be the general director of youth and Christian education and then became president of Lee College. Yes. And from, from there, you, at that next assembly in 86, you become one of the assistant general overseers. Third, third assistant. Third assistant. General overseer. From Lee. From Lee. From like, Lee. It's just like two years, two years, two years. Yeah, but it. And then he goes to general assembly. Did you have any clue that you were about to go on the committee? Tell no. the truth. Yes. <laughs> no, no clue whatsoever. Honestly. You didn't think I might go on the committee. No. Nobody came up to you and said, hey, we think you're going on Because the things yes. are going good at Lee. People had come up to me and told me a lot of things that never came true. The, mo <laughs> the moment you start believing everything you hear, even your own publicity... <laughs> Your own public relations release. That's the best publicity I get. <laughs> so, no, I had no idea that I would ever be elected, and there were there were things that mitigated against it. Even an article in the uh, Atlanta oh, Times, right, right on the front page, I had talked to a press man there and talked with him. Said, "Now, what city was this?" This was in Atlanta. Atlanta, and you talked to a reporter? Well, the, the reporter came to Lee, actually, when I was president. He sort of had done his research. After the, after the interview was over, and he put his pen up and put his pad away and started out the door, he turned around and he said, have you had any difficulty with any of the students with this kind of thing? And I told him about something that had just happened. One, one person, was a, one young guy was a, from a southern state, <laughs> very conservative church, and the other guy was his roommate, was from what was being called in those days a liberal progressive church. And this guy came in and it was from the conservative church and he said, I want a new roommate. 
I said, why? And he said, because he ain't church of God and he just, he don't believe like I do. And I said, well, let me talk with him. So he came in and, and, and he, he said, I am a member of the church of God. And he told me which church he went to. And he said, well, I said, well, he thinks you're not church of God. Why? He said, I, I don't know. But if he's church of God, I don't want to be church of God. And I said, I got the two of them back together. And I, those two guys became good friends. And so I told this guy, yeah, we're not that far apart. We believe the same thing. We've just sort of grown up under different circumstances. So he goes and puts it on the front page. President of Lee College says the church is divided. So I see that on the day they are electing executive committee members. You think I'm going to be elected? Well, they say no such thing as bad PR. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's, I mean, if, if, if so I it had... It was a shock to It you. was a shock. So you become third, third assistant. assistant general overseer. What's that like? It's being a member of the executive committee with training wheels. <laughs> you know, you're learning. This is a systems question. So you got general, first, second, third assistant. Are those portfolios, as you go from third to second to first, are they more difficult? Are there greater responsibilities Normally, as you move? Yeah, that's a good question. Normally, the first assistant normally draws uh, world missions because that's a big, okay. you know, big project. That doesn't always, it hasn't always happened. Uh, I would say that most general overseers sort of look at the quality and the person that you know that's there mm -hmm. but primarily that would be it the rest of it is just sort of it's it's the general overseer's decision he oh, makes okay. he makes the decision as to what portfolio goes with each each person so i, I received the communications portfolio and also received uh, the the servicemen's uh, chaplaincy uh -huh. servicemen's ser and i love that okay. that was such a great fulfillment for me uh, being in charge of the military. So you do that for four years. So you're, no. you're third assistant I do that for two, two years. Then you be, for the next two years, you become first assistant? I become second assistant. Second assistant. Under different general overseers? No, same general. Here, here's the irony of that. My good friend Cecil Knight mm -hmm. was the third, I mean, was the second assistant. I was elected over him. And so he would have been elected probably as third assistant. And he chose to come to the seminary rather than to take the step down. It was embarrassing to me. It, it didn't, I didn't feel good about that, about jumping over him. Uh, because again, I told you earlier, he was a mentor. He was a, a person that I loved and a person that poured a lot into me. And I didn't, I didn't feel good about it, but I was, elected so i had to serve so and i said that's rare that's like that that's very rare that's very rare okay and so then you become general overseer 1990 yeah again did you see that coming no way well i mean who else was it going to be ray hughes ray hughes had been already general overseer and ray hughes was the first assistant and he was eligible to be the general and I knew the history, and over a hundred-year history, a sitting first assistant who was eligible had always been elected as general. Mm. That's the only time it's ever happened. But I want to tell you what, each of those two men, as strong of a leaders as they are, treated me with incredible 
gentleness and respect. It's like, Lamar, you didn't have anything to do with this. This is the way it is. We all live with this. Take it. God bless you. We're going to support you. Every time I hear this resume, two years, two years, you know, it's kind of like I think everybody might think this poor guy can't keep a job, <laughs> you know. But, it, yeah, because, it, you know, it, it just all sort of runs together. And, and none of these I made a choice on. I never applied for any of those jobs. Well, I'll tell you something about Ray Hughes. I didn't know him. But just as I'm trying to wrap my brain around the history of the general overseers, I have discovered that he was, it seemed like Ray Hughes was always in the running. And he was general overseer three times. When, when I was elected as general, it, it was a shock. And, you know, Ray Hughes and Cecil Knight both just went on with their lives and they supported me. And, and I am altogether sure that they, they both died knowing how much I loved and respected each of them. Wasn't there a really interesting twist of events regarding the, the, like, the White House of General Overseers? <laughs> because I always wonder, like, you know, when somebody becomes the president of the United States and they have their first night in the White House, when you become the general overseer, is there like, you know, this special thing? But but isn't there like something to that with this story? This was, again, the training wheels and the inexperience. You know, uh, I, I got caught in a situation when I was serving as assistant general director. And so I went to Ray Hughes, who was general, and I said, you know, I've, I've been elected as assistant director, but I don't want to move in the direct assistant director's house. I want to keep my own house. And he, and he said, no, if you take the job, you take the house. <laughs> I hadn't been there but a few months, and Ray Hughes came to me, and he said, Lamar, we've decided to give that house to Lee. Well, you want to keep your own house? I said, I've already sold my house, sold my own furniture. Well, we're going to give it to Lee, so you've got to find a place to live. Oh. So I went on and told my wife, and she, didn't, she wasn't too happy, and I said, okay, you got my word. We will never live in another parsonage. If I make this move and buy another house, we're going to keep our house till we retire. So when I got on the executive committee, uh, I, made the, I looked at the budget and saw how many times those houses had been remodeled. Every time somebody else new moves in with leadership by taking turns. Right. Somebody wants a different paint, different. So we're spending a whole lot of money. And not only that, we are depriving these people of having a place for retirement yeah. because they don't have their own home. Why don't we take that money, give it to them, and let them provide their own housing? And so they said, well, do you recommend this for all of the houses? I recommend this for all of the houses. They passed it. Ray Hughes came to me afterward. He's first assistant. He thinks he's going to be general. I think he's going to be general. He says to me, Lamar, I wish you hadn't done that. He said, I like living in that house. And I, and, and I said, Brother Hughes, I didn't know that. I am so sorry. I got with Brother Crowley, and I said, okay, let me see what I can do. And I went back in, and I said, you know, I've been thinking about this. I did think about it after Ray Hughes jolted me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, the general overseer takes some job immediately, and he has to begin work right when he's elected. So we don't want to put him with a burden of having to find a house. So well, why don't we keep the general over Seal's house and sell everybody else's house? They voted on that. Ray Hughes came around and thanked me. I'm elected as general overseer. My wife says, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to move into the general overseer's oh, house. 
<laughs> you take the job. The you house take comes. The job. You take the house. You take the house. But that's the last one. So, who are some of the guys that that you were as you were general? They were on your committee. You don't have to name everybody. I'm just curious who well, were some of the guys uh, that served alongside you. Bob Fisher, mm-hmm. um, John Nichols, yeah. Bob White. I love him. Um, Dennis McGuire, Orville Hagen, uh, Bill Sheeks. Wasn't there a point in, in your administration, you're the general overseer, and you look around the room, and you're like the youngest guy in the room? That's when I was elected as right. general. Uh, I was the youngest guy, and we had people like John Nichols and Bill Sheeks and uh, Bob Fisher came on later. Uh, but when I was elected as general, I was so shocked. And I walked to the microphone and I said, I am not prepared to give an address. If you don't mind, I'll delay this if you'll give me a little time to think about this. And I didn't speak. That was, I did, your introverted that was my guy coming that out. was my introverted guy coming out because I hadn't. I was I was embarrassed. I was shocked. I was I was looking at Ray Hughes to and see. You knew Iris was going to beat you up over the house too. No, I think she thought we'd probably move to our own house <laughs> <laughs> because I had promised her, but she gave she forgave me. She did. Uh, well, okay. So uh, tell me about the what. You'd been on the committee for a little bit, and then now you're the general overseer. This is your first go-around. What did you not know until you became – what could you not have known? Anybody in that position, they can't know it until they're the GO. What is that thing, or what's something? Well, I think the first thing that gave me a shock, and when I went to the general – as, general, as third assistant, I took the first computer to the fourth floor really? in 1986. And so I was accustomed to working off of the computer, getting all of that knowledge. So I walked in, and we start to appoint state overseers. And so I say, well, uh, give me a little bit of a background about this guy. I don't really know him. Well, we, we don't have any background on him or anything. Uh, I, I, I preach for him and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Well, what about his kids? How many kids does he have in school? I mean, does he have, I've sat in the bleachers and seen kids cry when they're a senior going into their graduation and their, their, their husband, I mean, their father, and I've seen wives cry as well, but their fathers are moved to a state and they have to start, finish in a new school. No, I mean, and so I, I, I said, let's, let's get this thing on computer. Well, uh, I was told a bit later that we just bought a fax machine. We don't need computers. Now, well, the fax machine is not a computer. And this was from one of the secretaries. And so that's when we hired our first computer technician to set up the whole computer system. Wow. And so we we got all of the data. And so getting the data, getting the information, because, again, you cannot make intelligent information if you don't have the right data. Yeah. So you really spent some time bringing communications up. Absolutely. Were you surprised by that? I was shocked. By the lack of data. Well, yeah, that's the answer to the question was... He yeah. walked in and they had oh, a Rolodex. Right. Yeah. It was a Rolodex. You know, it was like there was a lady who knew the information probably, but you'd get it five or six days later after you've already made a decision. Wow. 
You know, it was like a Rolodex kind of deal. It is kind of scary. And uh, but but again, you have to keep in mind that in 1986, how many people did have yeah. uh, computers and that sort of thing? I mean, but it a was global organization should be have some cutting edge technology, in my opinion. And well, you see like what we have now. Yeah, yeah. If you pin in there now, yes. And you know that that communication center was not a part of the fundraising, or not a part of the tithe fund for that building. A personal donor gave us the money to put that communication center in. But I was there in the birthing of that. So the, you know, again, the challenge of seeing that sort of thing develop. Yeah. So, so then you you go from so you spend four years, and as general as general overseer, and then when you leave, you become uh, chancellor of education for the Church of God. Yes. And, but let, let me back up. I'm sorry. While you're general overseer the first time, you also become a board member of the national the American Bible Society. Correct. How did that come about? Like. Well, I, at that particular that time, even as serving as assistant general overseer, Ray Hughes came to me, and he had been so involved, so involved in the general church world out there with the National Association of Evangelicals that he, he asked me if I would assume that responsibility, and I did. And for some reason, I was elected as chairman uh, of the board of the National Association of Evangelicals several years later. So then you spend two years uh, chancellor of education and chairman of the National Association. Well, I spent more years than that. I don't know how many well, years. I mean, yeah, I spent that time. I don't know how long I was chairman of the National Association. Right. Uh, but you spent two years as chancellor of education yeah. for the Church of God. Right. And then you become, in 96, you become assistant general overseer. Or was it first assistant? Or? First assistant. Um, were you surprised to go back on the committee? Was it something you thought was going to happen? I knew that there was a possibility because of the the depth on the bench yeah. <laughs> and because of the situation that had just happened. Yeah, and Paul Walker at this point Paul is, Walker the general overseer. is the general overseer. So you go back on. Now, what's that like to go from I used to be general overseer but now I'm first assistant. What's the adjustment like? Um, for me, I don't, I don't know that there was any adjustment. I mean, uh, I got sense enough to know that the man who sits at the head table with the gavel is going to make the decisions. And uh, Paul Walker and I had been friends for a long time. And uh, he had basically, you know, supported me in so many different ways in my in my ministry I'd preached for him and so but yeah I was relieved I didn't I I, I thought that there was a possibility it would be it would not be true to say I didn't expect some possibility yeah. but again I always put the best case scenario in the worst case scenario and if it had not happened I would have still not been disappointed then two years later you become general overseer but in yeah. six years removed from when you were general overseer the first time, what's the what's it like getting another at bat? Yeah, I think the second time, well, the first time even, uh, uh, you know, we had we had some good success, because the first time I was elected was when we had the first major cut in the tithe fund. The second time around, 
I was less timid, <laughs> I think, and we made some very tough decisions. And you're no longer the young guy on the... I'm no longer the young guy. I'm, I'm now respected in a way. And the point of it is it was the same way... You know, I, I'd always been a pastor. I was an evangelist at 18. I was pastor at 20. I was youth director like at 24. I was general overseer in my early 40s. And so I'd always been the young guy on the block. And now all of a sudden I realize I'm not... In fact, I was sitting with one of my friends. We started in the ministry together, and there were three or four of us sitting on a platform in a, in a camp meeting. And I looked at these guys, and these are the guys I grew up with. And I turned around, and, and I'm on the executive committee, and I said, where are the grown-ups? You know, because <laughs> I, I went into all of those earlier things feeling at a disadvantage because of my youth, because of my inexperience, because I'd never been a state overseer. I'd never done what these other men had done successfully. But I think I went into that second term with a more sense of a, I know where I am, and I know what's going on. And I think you said this in our, the first time we had we interviewed him. You said, it's very different because we grow up thinking, Lamar Vest, you're really the first one I paid attention to. I wasn't really aware as a kid who the general overseer <laughs> was, what it was, that there even was one. Lamar Vest was the first one that I became aware of in my <laughs> consciousness. And so it was, you know, it was those Reagan years that first time around, uh, you know, kind of like that. And so then, uh, Brian, I think you said last time, we always had this idea that you were the elder statesman guy. <laughs> right, no. And now we're hearing your story, we realize you are always the young guy. Yeah, I was, but, but you got to think, I was, what, 17 or 18. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so in my mind, you are. You know, yeah, at, right. At 13 years old, that's the elder statesman. Not no. realizing he's the 13-year-old in his circle. I'm, I'm still the young guy on the block. Even, even my second time around, I was still perhaps the youngest. I think I'm still the youngest the second time around. Really? But, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, look at, you look at Robert White was the second time, and Bill Sheeks was older than me, Robert Fisher, any, all of those guys that uh, came on to the executive committee were still older. But I think the, the experience and having been there. What advice would you give to guys who are that, that, that hold that young leader position where they're surrounded by people who are older than them and they're the young guy on the block? Uh... Well, again, I can only tell you my, my experience. Right. You know, again, being the younger person on the block, I realized that God had put certain knowledge and wisdom around me that I had to learn how to take adv advantage of. Not, not take advantage of. I had to learn how to give them the opportunity to flourish and to produce their best because I needed them. And so... We would go back, going back to the portfolios, I didn't just sit down and draw up the list of portfolios. I met with each one of them separately. And I said, tell me what your burden is. Tell me what God has laid on your heart. And so I would take as much as I could from their passion and their burden and give them the portfolio. And, you know, the one thing you can always be sure of, two things you can always be sure of. Well, there's several things, but I mentioned two. First thing you can be sure of, you, you know that behind every successful man is a successful woman. 
somebody who keeps him in line. And you can also be sure that behind every successful man are a lot of other successful men. And if you don't learn how to take advantage and give opportunity for those around you to flourish, you'll never flourish as a leader. Have you ever read Abraham Lincoln's book, a team of the Abraham Lincoln's book on a team of rivals? No. So that's that's kind of again, these are these are professional people. And each one of them were capable of sitting at the end of that table. And as I said to them, and I told you before, I mean, I said to them, I'm here not because I'm smarter, wiser. I'm here because I got more votes than you did. And that's the only reason I'm here. And I'm, I'm going to do my very best to, to do the job. So one of the things I've picked up on, there are times when this leadership position, as powerful as it is, has very specific restrictions. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of it's there's times where I'm looking now at, at you men who've served and think how restrictive some of this is yeah. because of the moving pieces, because of the limitations on like tenure, um, because you're also working alongside people you didn't hire. Like if you're a pastor, you hire people. Yeah. You hire the people that you need no, or you don't need. And you need. fire them and you, <laughs> if they don't agree with you. You don't keep them around. Man. But when you're sitting there, listen, yes. when you're sitting at the end of that table with four guys that basically could be certainly sitting where you are, right. and some of them think they probably should, and probably they and should have some, been. In your case, some of them did. Some of them did. And and so they're sitting there, and, and, and you know, the one, one of the things that I hated for anybody on the executive committee to say, it was absolutely true, but I hated it, is I'm only one of five. You know, if somebody would ask a third assistant or a second assistant, why didn't I get appointed? Well, I recommended you, but I'm only one of five. It takes five men. So you're sitting there with a gavel in your hand and you realize you don't have but one vote. Everybody around that table has the same vote you do. That's a disadvantage. Yeah. Except I learned an advantage. I learned what the gavel was for. Knocking we, people in the head. We don't take the vote until the gavel comes down. Okay. And the gavel's not coming down till I get some sort of consensus on this. And so I could take a vote and I would have two vote yes and two vote no. I broke more ties than I guess any I've been told by those who've served <laughs> than any general overseer. But yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't vote until I said, okay, I only got one vote, but I've got the privilege of holding my vote. And if I didn't like the way the vote was turning out, I'd just put the gavel aside and say, we'll talk about it later. Because I'm not satisfied with what's the way it's going. That and seems like a lot of wisdom. Yeah. Well, A lot I of mean, people would have just broken all those ties. No, I wanted them to leave feeling that they had at least had an opportunity to convince me that I was wrong. Where did you learn that? I don't have a clue. <laughs> I don't have a clue. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So uh, anyway, that's. I love that. Well, I mean, say, you know, I don't get a chance to talk this out, but if it's, yeah. you know, it's. I, uh, well, I, you know, Doctor Vest, it's it's fascinating listening to you talk about those times, because really and truly, what you're talking about is a very human experience. This was a. This is a. These are just people with personalities and passions and blind spots and and wisdom and experience and and all that together and and also the cocktail 
I hadn't thought of until Brian pointed it out that you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it, it really is interesting what he said about you're having to work with people you didn't pick, you didn't hire, you can't fire. Um, and so then, man, that that creates a need for a even higher level level of leadership uh, that I don't think I, I really thought of until now. Church. Well, you know, that's the thing that has impressed me about all of the generals who have served is that Ray Hughes mentioned this to me when he, he, he's told, he would tell it several times, he was off somewhere in another country, I think, when Leonard Carroll died mm -hmm. and he got the call, your first assistant, the general is dead, you are the general overseer. And he walks out on the balcony and he says, I feel this like a curtain falling down over me. It's like a burden. It's like a, a responsibility that I didn't ask for, but it's here. And, 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 and I think, without sounding too spiritual about it, I think there is a mantle that does come on a person and that responsibility that even with Paul Walker, Paul Walker, the, mm -hmm. the quintessential pastor, you know, who's a PhD counselor. And so he had to relearn uh, the thing about the, the restrictions that you're talking about. Because as a pastor, and how many times have I, had I sat with people and, and they would tell me things that as a pastor mm -hmm. that I considered to be totally confidential, that I would never share with anybody. But as general overseer, if somebody came in and started saying, you know, I need to tell you, okay, if you're going to tell me something that you've done that's contrary to the Church of God minutes, don't tell me because I will deal with it. And, and you know... If you couldn't operate in that role, you'd have to send them to someone else. Who could. I'd send them to someone else. Yeah. I, would send them, I would send them to Paul Walker as a pastor. <laughs> you, you can't tell me your problem as Lamar Vest. You're telling me your problem this time as general overseer. Yeah. So if there's something that you don't want me to know and you don't want to talk about, Go to Paul Walker or go to somebody else. There were several other counselors. Wow. And then oftentimes those same people would come back and I would have to deal with them. But I would find it out through other sources. Dennis Watkins, our attorney, told me that I have spent over 200 hours doing legal deposition for the Church of God. And I've had to deal with some of these cases that you probably have heard about somewhere along the way. But I've sat and listened to the testimony under oath and had to answer for the church. I sat one time with 12 different attorneys of a man who had had sex with a child. Ugh. And they wanted to blame me and the church of God. And I said, you are not going to blame me. And you're not going to blame the church of God. This guy has lost his credentials. He will never be able to be credentialed in the church of God. And if we had known that he had that propensity, we would have never credentialed him. But there's nothing in his record that ever shows that. And if you can ever show me anything in his record that we missed, then you can accuse us. But we're not going to take the blame of this. I don't think that the people out there who want that job realize that you can't run this job like you do your church. You can't run it like you do a state. We can't even begin to realize it until we do it, right? That's right. Obviously, I'm not going to be the general overseer. I can start to realize it when I sit down with four or five or, or you know, six yeah. guys 
who have done it. And then I begin to say, wait a minute. I mean, again, people have asked me often when I was out there in that larger Christian world and getting criticized by some of my own people about being out there yeah. doing those things. Why, why don't you just give it up? Why don't you, you know, that's a small umbrella. You could operate under this large umbrella and just think of all the things you could do. What could I do that I'm not doing now? You know, the fact, the fact is that I wouldn't be here had it not been for the church who trained me and who gave me the opportunities. And if you think I'm going to abandon the church now, no way. Well, do you mean you agree with everything the church of God has done? No. But I didn't agree with everything my mother did, but she, she was always my mother. I don't agree with everything I've done. I don't either. <laughs> no. So you, after you served uh, the second time as general overseer <laughs> for four years, now, uh, since then, since your time as general overseer, you had the opportunity to be president of the American Bible Society. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What was that like? I mean, was that... That, that's a whole different world because you're dealing with lots of different people from different denominations. and Yeah, well, yeah, it, it, again, was a challenge. And for those who don't know, the American Bible Society, it's only been around for a couple of hundred years. But uh, it, it came about actually at the same time the Louisiana Purchase took place, so that we were still dealing with the colonies. Well, one of the grand privileges... Uh, was was being appointed as a part of the uh, the King James Trust, which uh, we were getting ready for the celebration of the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. So being a member of the King James Trust took me to a garden party with uh, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, and then got me in to meet uh, Prince Charles, who is now King Charles, and then got me into the archives of the King James translators. Uh, the Bible. So I had the opportunity to see the original handwriting of the translators yeah, of the King the James Bible. Not the first printing, the actual not the first printing, handwriting. Their handwriting. That they clearly did with, with feathered pens. With feather pens, yeah. Quills. Well, <clears throat> I, I want to ask you as we wrap up a few rapid fire questions to finish up. And you, uh, you are the only one who has had the advantage of having heard these before <laughs> but let's see uh we'll compare your answers the first time around with these <laughs> answers um, if you could go back and give your 18 year old self some advice what would it be pray hard hmm. what, what did you enjoy most about the job as general overseer being elected oh really <laughs> That was they the said easiest part of the it, easiest right? part of the job. What was your least favorite part of the job? Leaving my family and doing the travel. Who was the unsung hero during your administration? I'd say Mike Baker. Mike Baker's the one when we worked together in Team Talent, and we worked out a communication system, and we worked out a a recording system, and so when, when I got to the committee, he helped develop that whole system that you see at the General Assembly now. And so, and he did a lot of, he did a lot of, uh, as communications director, he did a lot of uh, covering for us with the press and that kind of thing, and, and sort, of, sort of talked to the staff about what to say and what not to say if you're asked this kind of question. He's, he's brilliant with that sort of thing. Who's the greatest leader in the Church of God to never be general overseer? 
I, I tell you the friend that I always felt like never got the due result. I don't know whether he would have wanted to be general overseer, but was Lewis Willis. He was a friend to general overseers. He was the public relations director before Mike Baker, before I hired him. And I always held him up in the highest respect. But, but I can think of so many others, you know, that, that just had such great leadership ability. But I don't know. I don't know that you can basically make that decision uh, as to who would do it. You almost got to put them in the, ta in the chair before you can find out because it's, yeah. Who's on your Mount Rushmore of general overseers? Who's the top How many is on the Mount Rushmore? Four. But if you want to do five, that's fine. I, I think I mentioned the six to okay. you. And, and the reason for that is thinking about it, as we talked about it earlier, is that there were three that mentored me. Okay. And that was th those three that I mentioned, uh, Charles Kahn, Ray Hughes, and Cecil Knight. And then there's the three that I've had an opportunity to impart into their life, and that's Tim Hill, Mark Williams, and Raymond Culpepper. But now, of those six, I need you to cut two. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm going to let you off the hook. I'm not going to make no, you cut two. I'm not going to do two. that. I'm not going to okay. make you cut two. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would you want it to be? He finished strong. Are you glad you did it? I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't go back and change anything. Because, again, I like who I am and where I am right now. What got you through the tough times? Uh, my wife, both Iris and Vicki. Uh, God put, put us together. Why Iris had to die, I don't know. I never have figured that out because she was my childhood sweetheart and we had successful life together. But God sent Vicki into my life. And if you can't go home and discuss your passions and your problems and have somebody to, to comfort you, somebody to... Uh, encourage you it could be a very lonely life I lived a miserable life having to tell people that I was widowed and I had nobody to go home to and I think Iris well I know Iris understood that before she went into the hospital because the last conversation we had before she went into the hospital the morning after uh, she started to cry and I said Iris this is the first time I've seen you cry I know you are concerned about the operation and cancer. Why are you crying now? She said, because I don't know how this is going to turn out. And she said, Lamar, I, I hope you don't take this offensive, but I've always thought it would be better for you to go first. And I said, well, why? Because she said, I think I could make it. But you're going to have a tough time. You need somebody to help you. And so promise me that if something happens and I don't make it, that you are not going to live alone, that you will find somebody to be with for the rest of your life. And she had actually told her mother that, and she had told my daughters that. And so when Vicki and I got together, uh, 
it was actually Iris's mother who feels like she she's passed on now, but she's told other people that she's the one that got us together. Oh, really? Because she hinted to me that Vicky would be the one that I should be talking with, because her husband had been killed four years earlier, and she was a widow, and she was a great person of God, a great prayer warrior. She didn't tell me who it was, but I knew who it was. And what she didn't know is that we had already been talking on the phone. And so that's how we got together. We feel like, and, and every time we sat down together to talk about it, we, we, we made an agreement to begin with that we still love our marriages as they were before. We still embrace our, our spouses at that particular time. But this is a new life that God has given us, and we're going to make the best of it together. And I don't know that I could have made it uh, through these 20-something years now, 22 years, without Vicki. And so God gave me two incredible women uh, to live with, to, to, to be the strength and the undergirding factor in my life. That's so good. So that's where I am. Thank you, Dr. Vest, for spending time with us today and sharing this with us. I really appreciate it. And thank you for everything you've done for the church. Well, uh, to God be the glory. Brian Lindsay here. Thanks for listening to Season 1 of In the Arena Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed hearing from the leaders who in the Church of God have been affectionately called Mr. Moderator. It's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph and at the worst if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat.